Welcome to Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen, an international menopause expert, author, and speaker. I help women go from feeling uncertain, uncomfortable, and struggling to experiencing a new sense of confidence, freedom, and vitality. My own story mirrors that of thousands of women that I have connected with through writing my book, speaking engagements, and coaching. Like you, I felt unprepared, unsupported, and at times dismissed by family, employers, and even doctors. That's why I created this podcast as a place of advocacy, offering facts, resources, and a community where you can become more empowered to take control of your menopause journey. Join us each week as we dive into honest, open, raw conversations on the topics that matter deeply to menopausal midlife women. From our changing bodies to our relationships, to dealing with menopause and aging at work and in society. My mission is to help you to tap into our collective wisdom so you can emerge more powerful, wiser, not just older, thriving and ready to embrace wholeheartedly the next chapter in your life. Well, welcome to another episode of Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen, and today... We're going to be talking about a question that many women have. Is that normal? Am I normal? Particularly when it comes to perimenopause, menopause, and sex. And I'm delighted to be joined today by someone who herself describes how she is as a sex science geek, which was just intriguing. Welcome to the show, Dr. Claire McCauley. Hello, Clarissa. I'm absolutely delighted to be here with all my labels, including the sex science geek one. (laughs) Fantastic. But Claire, for the listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know that you're an oncologist and you work particularly with breast cancer and you have a special interest in sex and menopause and perimenopausal women. But how did that come about? What's, What's the story behind that? Yes, at first glance, it seems like quite a strange combination of things to be doing. But um, for me, my initial interest in menopause came through my treatment of people with breast cancer, because for a number of the people that I treat, in fact, maybe about 70 to 80 percent of them, we will manipulate their hormones in such a way to treat their breast cancer that makes them menopausal. So we, we make people chemically menopausal, often overnight. And for younger women who've not been through the menopause, that is an almost an instant menopause. And, and for, for older women who may have been through the menopause previously, we may actually give them almost like a second menopause. So we need to really think carefully around how we manage some of those things for women because the breast cancer is the focus, but what happens to them thereafter isn't always at the forefront of our minds. We're always thinking about, is the breast cancer away, et cetera, et cetera. Not necessarily always thinking about the effect of that treatment on their life. And thereafter. No, and I think especially if you're a younger woman, that can be quite an added trauma, can't it? On top of what you're going through with breast cancer, which is a can be a very large and significant process in a woman's life, you've then also got this maybe unexpected or a second menopause. Well, I couldn't even think what that would feel like to go through that again. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the focus of everything is on the breast cancer, but there's all sorts of other things going on. People are dealing with their mortality. They're dealing with the, 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 the kind of continued worry. Is this going to come back? Am I going to die of breast cancer? Am I going to be cured? They're dealing with 
physical changes to their body if they've had surgery, breast surgery. Most women will have had breast surgery. Either we try to conserve the breast in as much as we possibly can, but some may, women may be dealing with mastectomy or significant loss of some aspect of their of their breast tissue. And all of the other things become a little bit secondary to that. So that's where my interest started. And then I started to become perimenopausal myself and started to experience some of the menopausal um, symptoms, perimenopausal symptoms that go along with that. And in the meantime, I developed an interest in somatic sexology, which is the way in which we actually deal with teaching and helping people to understand their sexuality using the body rather than trying to think it through our minds. And as these two seemingly quite disparate things started to kind of become really important in my life, it became really obvious that there was a crossing point, which was, you know, a significant proportion of the women who I coach and deal with through menopause, be that a natural menopause or through a, a medically induced menopause, are struggling with their sex lives and nobody's talking about it. And it really became apparent all these things all sort of started to come together in that kind of classic midlife, what am I all about, what am I here for piece. Um, and it just became really obvious. And then you kind of go, why didn't I think of that before? <laughs> and that's how we ended up at, that's how I ended up at the pleasure possibility. And the idea that, you know, as you talk about a lot in your work, which is we reach this point and there are, there are choices to be made and there is a huge amount of empowerment in those choices. But we first of all need to realise that there is a choice. And a lot of the issues around kind of sex and the menopause, people seem to accept or, or be resigned to the fact that their sex lives are over. And actually that doesn't need to be the case. There is a choice to be made there. I love that. And I think that's the story that comes out in every woman's group all over Facebook. It's over for me. Some women are saying, oh, well, that's good. He doesn't want to have sex anymore. I don't want to have any sex more. Great. But I'm not sure if that's always quite the truth, you know, whether that's what we say because they feel hopeless and trapped. I mean, maybe some of us have rotten sex and we're quite glad that it's over. <laughs> I think that's really important because I think it is often, and I don't mean the word excuse as in, but, but it is sometimes an excuse, if we like, to get out of having sex that was rubbish anyway. And why wouldn't we take that opportunity? And so what I say to women is, look, if you are very happy with your sex life, lack of sex life, or you know, somewhere in between, then please don't let anybody, me especially, make you feel that you should be doing something different. That's not what this is about. This is not to say, you know, there is a, there is a cookie cutter model of what sex should look like in the perimenopausal period and, and thereafter. But the fact of the matter is that for many women, it is a resignation, almost a cultural resignation, rather than something that they feel viscerally um, is true for them. And I think that's something that we really, you know, we, until we start having conversations and we start offering a different narrative, then that's what women, I think, will continue to believe. That's very true. And I think also that for a lot of people, we have a particular view in our cultures and our society of what sex looks like, you know, that it is, it's heterosexual, it's penetrative sex, and that is that. And then when you can't or don't want to have that, it is over. And and I don't think that if you talk to women who are embracing something different, that that is necessarily that path that they follow. Absolutely. And that's that's often exactly where I start with people, which is, you know, we, we talk about PIV, which means penis and vagina. That is that equal sex in a lot of people's minds. And what I'm trying to, to start to say to people is actually that that is a very small part of what you can choose to experience. 
should you choose something different? Um, and also, often we, we really need to start with our relationship with ourselves. What is it that we actually want? Who are we as sexual beings? And what do we want to do with that? And very many women that I come across have never even considered the fact that they ha- they, there is a, a sexual self to which they wish to have a connection. So we need to start really there. What, what does this mean to you? You know, what messages did you get? What beliefs have you internalised? And do any of those serve you now? And if they don't serve you now, you know, do you want to think about what might serve you and move towards that in a, in a proactive way rather than accepting that this is all over for you because you, you're not aware of anything different? And that's a very bold move for a lot of women because I don't think consciously we think about ourselves as sexual beings for the, a lot of our lives. A lot of our lives we're wives, we're mothers, we're working, we're doing this and that. And the menopause changes us so physically the whole perimenopause journey that it is brought to the forefront sometimes because it's downright painful for us yes absolutely and I think that's really important is that that sense of you know so women come to me and they say I don't have this and I don't have that and I don't know and I've got no sex drive and I haven't got this and I say did you have any of that before and when they stop and think about it they go hmm Maybe not really. And then I said, well, it's not going to happen like a bolt out of the blue now. We need to reprogram some of that. And this is the perfect time in your life to do that if you want to. And it's got to be that invitation. Is this something that you want in your life and not simply another thing that you think you have to be doing or you have to be fulfilling for someone else? Because to be honest, by the time we get to this point in our lives, it's time to say enough, actually, enough of all of that, enough of tolerating, putting up with, putting everybody else's feelings first. You know, this is your opportunity. I love that we we are suddenly in a different driving seat. We can let go of what I call smog, you know, should, must, ought, and got, throw that in the bin. We're not, we're done with that. And we start to ask, what do I need? And that is a huge question for many women, isn't it, Claire? Absolutely. And I think particularly when we start to say to people, what do you need sexually? Because the most common answer to that is, I don't know. And that's what a lot of this work is about, is about trying to peel back some of the layers, not to move you back in time, because frankly, who really wants to be having the sex that we're having when they were 20? If we're really honest about it, it probably wasn't that great. So we're not trying to turn back time. What we're trying to do is peel back some of the layers and see who am I underneath all of this as a sexual being? What, you know, what does that mean to me? And how do I bring that forward in my life? Because for a lot of the people that I work with, starting with their sexuality leads to a whole load of other positive things in their life because they feel really centred and grounded and clear, comfortable in their own body. And that is a brilliant place to move your business forward, to get rid of, out of a crappy relationship that you really should have got out of years ago, you know, to make big changes in your life because we're really starting with us, we're starting with I and, you know, and really getting familiar with what it is that makes us tick, what our values are, how do I want to show up in the world? Yeah, and sex is part of that it's part of being human but how that looks that is a journey we can go on isn't it like we can look and say actually I'd I want my sex to be different and I think a lot of us you know at some time have have thought oh well it's what we do on Friday nights 
<laughs> Absolutely. And I think that, that comes back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, what is it that you want it to look like? We, are, we do have this very conditioned, societally conditioned view about what it should look like. Doesn't have to look anything like that. You know, if you want to run around your house dressed as a unicorn, that's fine. It's about a lot of it is about play. It's about accessing our creative energies. It's about um, intimacy in all sorts of different ways, and that does not need to mean intercourse. There's all sorts of ways to enjoy some of that. And as we know, obviously, you know, for a lot of menopausal women, if we're talking intercourse comes a lot with a lot of issues around pain and vaginal dryness and all of those kind of things, which there are things that we can do to help. But who is going to want to have that if it's painful? And we know from a lot of the research and science that a lot of women tolerate painful sex because they don't want to have the conversations with their partner. And for me, that's just heartbreaking. Why, you know, something that should be something that feels nourishing and feels good for you, you're tolerating as painful for the sake of someone else. And some of it is about helping women to feel brave, to actually own what it is that they need that they want, and then to find their voice to express that to partners, someone else. And and that's right. And I think vaginal dryness becomes then a very big topic that can feel, I think, at times overwhelming with a lot of solutions coming at women by this product, by that product, and you're going, which one is it? You know, even if I was to go to a store here in Sweden and choose, you know, Sweden's supposed to be sexually liberated. Well, I'm not sure that it's any different than anywhere else. But you go in the store and then there's a million different pessaries and stuff and you just go, oh, what am I supposed to do in here? And then you're too embarrassed to ask anybody and you kind of end up shuffling out of there. So how do women begin to address those aspects of vaginal dryness? Where do they start? So I think the first thing to start with is to recognise that it's normal. So somewhere between 60 to 70 percent of women will experience some element of um, vaginal atrophy, um, also called, you know, the your gentle syndrome of menopause, you know, so that whole area is reliant upon oestrogen for it to function optimally. So that includes your urinary tract, all of your genital tract, all of that and your and your pelvic floor. So all of that anatomy requires oestrogen in some way to work at tip-top condition. Now, obviously, when we're going through the menopause and you have a drop-off in oestrogen levels, that means that those tissues are less elastic, they're less likely to do what they do, and particularly around um, vaginal tissues means you're going to have significantly less vaginal lubrication. That is just the facts of it. So if you are experiencing it, that is normal. The fact that it's normal does not mean that you need to tolerate it. It does mean that once you know that it's normal, that you can at least stop stressing about it. Because a whole layer of stress, what we find is that a whole layer of stress about vaginal dryness on top of everything else makes things even worse. So if we start from the premise that it's normal and many women experience it, then we can leave the stress behind and that allows us then to look at some choices about how you might move forward. And as you say, there's millions of products out there. Personally, I don't think it really matters what product you use. And I say that because what's actually important is the doing. It's the taking control. It's the making decisions. It's the being proactive. It doesn't really matter which ones you use. Ultimately, they will all do some version of the same thing. And your choices mainly come down to, do I want to address this at a hormonal level? Or do I want to address this at a kind of lubrication wetness level? And, you know, they're two different, they're two different paths and, and women will choose different things. And, and all of those options are equally valid if it's the right one for you. So HRT will help. So there's no doubt about it. So systemic HRT, either in, in patches or gels, will help. 
local HRT, so local vaginal estrogens are extremely helpful. And women who perhaps not able to take HRT for a very specific medical reason or who have some concerns about HRT might choose to use vaginal estrogens because they're not absorbed into the rest of us. So they can do their act, they can they can have their action locally without affecting the rest of us. And then the non-hormonal options, which is long-acting vaginal lubricants or moisturisers. And when you are having intercourse, lubrication, lubrication, lubrication. you can never have too much lube. I don't care what anybody says, there can never be too much lube. And that's equally, that's actually equally important for younger women who are not experiencing this, but you can never have too much lube. No, that's true. And I think sometimes women have had tears from Set previous sex or maybe even for obviously from childbirth we can have a vagina that has some scarring there can't we and that can clearly make things possibly more difficult as we get drier yes absolutely and so as i'm currently training as a sexological body worker and some of the the um some of the services that we offer as part of that is around scar tissue remediation so what do you do how can you manage scarring how can you bring back sensitivity to scarring how can we change how we feel about scarring because a lot of the time again it's how we feel about it in our minds that causes a lot of the difficulty on top of the fact that you may already have some scarring from you know from either surgery or childbirth as you say but yes absolutely there are there are different ways to manage some of these things and it is a little bit about trial and error I don't think it particularly matters as I say what product it is that you're using it's the fact that you are feeling empowered enough to do something and that's a big part of all of this Uh, it is and I think that ties into the whole relationships of having sex that you are empowered to ask what you want you feel empowered to take action and then you also when you feel differently you feel differently about the way we look we're never going to be the little like I was tiny I was so thin and model like and I mean well I'm not like that anymore but there's a there's a well you know I'm, I'm 60 I don't look like I did when I was 20 and I wouldn't want to but that but that's also a coming to terms isn't it and that's in our minds about the fact that we are just curvier quite often than we were as younger and maybe we think that the partner we're with doesn't like the way we look and there's a lot of that in in our own messages maybe we don't like the way we look anymore yes absolutely and I I hear that a lot you know I can't imagine why my partner would want to have sex with me and then when I say to them well have you asked them (laughs) you know because actually what we're doing is then we're kind of predicting someone else's negative response but they're not even having a negative response and making and and internalizing it make that a message about us so there's quite a lot of that around body image that does come down to this place of acceptance and and exercising and beginning to become familiar with that element of self-compassion for who we are what do we look like now you know bodies don't feel any less because they are this shape or that shape you know we all have the same somatic sensation apparatus we all have it doesn't matter how big big small or otherwise lumpy wrinkly flabby your body is we all have the same pleasure anatomy and the size of your body doesn't affect the incoming stimulus what affects is how you choose to process that in your mind and that's why a lot of the work that I do is about getting people back into their body and out of their head. You know, what is it when you when you touch parts of your body, what can you feel? What can you not feel? Where do you notice that you're numb? I wonder what that numbness is about. I wonder how we can think about coaxing some sensation back into that area of numbness. Because we need to start with the body as such an one, it's such a beautiful gift we have. You know, it's an amazing piece of machinery and um, that can give us huge amounts of pleasure. And it also has a lot of information to give us. It has a lot of 
innate body wisdom that can help us get great stuff done in our lives. Exactly. And I think I would ask a question. I mean, how many of the women that you work with have never really explored their body? It's just kind of been there on below the neck doing its thing. And unless there's an issue, they haven't really ever touched themselves in that sort of way to feel the things that the body can give us, that sensory feedback. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, very. it's very common that women come to me that never looked at their own genitals, for example. So if you can't even acknowledge that their existence, that's where we need to start. So there is this concept of what's called the genital hole. So what that means is if I tell you to close your eyes and imagine your index finger on your right hand, you have a sense, you can think about it and I say, what can you feel? What sensations can you feel? Your, your mind has a sense with your eyes closed about what you can feel there. If I say to you, close your eyes and tell me what you can feel in your left labia, for example, there is no, we don't really have any fixed sense of what that is or what it means or what it feels like. And we're not in touch with the sensations that are coming back there to our brain all the time because we haven't trained that pathway. So for a lot of women, they will never have touched themselves and they certainly will never have looked at their genitalia and they will have a lot of shame and issues around masturbation. So we also do masturbation coaching and, and teaching people how to get the most out of how they what's available to them in their own body without we, before we even get to and the, the pleasure that's available to you when you work with a partner. Exactly. And I think that issue of shame is huge in this space. It weighs on women heavily. I mean, and I don't think it gets any different if it's a younger generation or or those of us who are over 50. We've carried that around from societal pressures, from our parents, from what is considered normal and not. And you know, I often say that when I worked a long time ago on a showering project where people did showers and shower gels, we had women who said, well, I couldn't possibly shower without a, a washcloth between me and my body. And I'm, I'm scanning names. I'm like, what? <laughs> but for them, there was a lot of shame associated for touching themselves directly with that, with their hand. There was just so many issues. Absolutely. And a lot of that comes from different areas, as you described there. So what messages did we get as young people? Often women will come to me and say, you know, it really is, because we do discover masturbation at quite a young age, even young children will masturbate. Guess what? Because it feels nice. But the messages that you get from that, you know, as in don't do that, that's dirty, don't do that in public, everywhere else, we can internalise those messages very, very, very early on. So we have familial and hereditary messages that come to us. And then, of course, we've got the mass of societal cultural pressures around how women should look, what they should be doing. You can't be a prude, but you can't be a slut either. All of those messages that there's somehow this perfect sweet spot that we're all going to fall into that is an acceptable sexual expression. It's just nonsense, but it, it's very, very pervasive and it feeds into a lot of this shame that we see around, you know, even talking about sexuality. So I know that there are people who, for example, on LinkedIn, where I've become quite vocal about this now, who will not like a like a post. I know they're reading and they message me privately, but they won't like a post because that then means some mad Scottish lady is going to appear on their LinkedIn newsfeed talking about sex. You know, so it's, it's that pernicious that you know that people don't want to be seen to be associated even with the concept of sexuality, which is amazing because we're all sexual beings. We're here because of sex. I mean, we we don't appear without it on the planet. And and we are, and we are attracted to people, and we've all experienced that rush. And I would say that a large majority of adults have probably watched some form of pornography during their life, even if they don't 
are willing to do that. I mean, you have to turn the TV on and watch Netflix. There's quite a bit of soft porn on that today. So so people are allowing that to flood into their living rooms, but somehow we can't talk about it in our own needs. And that's tragic, really. I think it is because it is, I think for me, when you do become in touch with what it means to be a sexual being and your sexual energy, it is ultimately your life force energy. So there, there, there's another whole layer to all of this, which is that it's the thing that makes the plants grow. You know, it, it's, the, it's the same universal energy that you can, that you have the ability to tap into within you to do amazing things in the life, in, in your life and in the world. And, you know, that there is the whole concept of sex magic, which is using the kind of alchemy of that sexual energy that you can tap into your body to, to get shit done, basically. Um, and when you get when you can get in touch with that, you can use it in all sorts of aspects of your life. Um, and in fact, I just I just was having a conversation yesterday about uh, with someone else about the fact, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. That kind of old Zen proverb, which is if you are in a relationship where you cannot speak out and you cannot give voice and you don't have clarity and you can't get what you want, you carry some aspect of that over into your other aspects of your life, your work life or whatever else. And actually, when you can really be in touch with your, your who you are as a sexual being, you can use it to your advantage and for other people's advantage and for good in the world in all sorts of ways. Yes, and I love that because it is. It's just good and it's good sex. It's good positive energy, whatever that looks like. And you feel that. You feel a rush, don't you? And you feel, wow. And then there's this relaxing afterwards, which is all positive. And if we could experience that in this aspect of our life, in our sex life, then yes, that kind of feelings can flow to other other parts of our lives. It seems quite logical because it's all energy, as you say. Yeah, absolutely. And again, trying to get away from the fact that there is one particular way that that might look. It doesn't really matter to a certain degree what that looks like. You know, your body and your nervous system don't mind whether you're stroking the top of your left arm or the bottom of your left foot. It's the idea that we can begin to drop into that much more parasympathetic rest and digest type space where we can move into a much more kind of relaxed type place, begin to dampen down this sympathetic stress response that we're all living in all the time. And all of the attendant benefits, health benefits that that brings, not just for your sex life, but for your health, your health as a whole. Yes. And I think the more stressed you are, obviously, the less sex you have, you're tired, you're not sleeping. And the whole thing becomes one in- interconnected kind of way of being, which doesn't support you to have a healthy sex life or anything else in your life that's as positive as it can be. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, stress is often some of the places that we need to start with people is around stress. You cannot do both things at the same time. Your arousal circuitry and your stress circuitry cannot both be going at the same time. So we need to really understand the concept of stress, particularly when we're talking about midlife women who may be, you know, they've got teenagers, say, like I have, and they've got, you know, ageing or infirm parents and they're working and this and that and all of the things that come together in midlife um, that bring a whole area of stress on top of the fact that you're also experiencing menopausal symptoms and all the rest of it. So yet stress is really, really important. And in fact, my very favourite book that I tell every woman to read, which is by um, Emily Nagoski, which is called Come As You Are, she wrote in 2015. She has just recently written a, a book with her twin sister, 
which is called Burnout. Now, there's no, it's not of any surprise that, you know, she's written two books, one about sex and one about stress, because they are inextricably linked with each other. And they're both about the female experience, one of the nonsense that we've been taught about sex and how to undo it. And this book about burnout, which is actually, you can't even get to talking about having um, a meaningful sex life until we deal with the burnout and stress that, you know, modern women are um, subjected to. Yeah. And I don't think until you start working with women this age, you realize how highly strung they are. They feel like they've been, they've literally been stretched and stretched to break point. And the thought of sex or changing sex or having a new partner feels just like one step too much at times. They're, they're holding it together just about, I would say. And that's what we see. We see that in the statistics, the number of women who are leaving their careers, who are burning out, who are suffering adrenal fatigue, who are just deeply unhappy. And that's stress, but that's flowing through into every part of their life. And I think some some of the behaviours that have led to this are about putting ourselves last, not attending to our own needs, not really knowing what our own needs are because we're so busy dealing with everybody else's. And that's where starting with sex can be really helpful because once you can get back into your body and once you can learn to listen to the messages that are coming forward and realising that your body is giving you all sorts of signals, all sorts of messages, and once you're able to interpret them, you then have a choice about what you do with them. But until we get to this idea that, you know, women should subjugate their their needs and desires to essentially caretake everyone else, be that parents, you know, partners, children, um, we're going to continue to have this area where women continue to burn out because they do not know and do not prioritise looking after themselves first. And that's where the body can be really helpful because we can. it's something you can, you know, it's physically with you all the time. You can start to make connections there that can help support all of that areas, particularly around burnout, work, stress, family stress, all sorts of aspects. Exactly. And I think starting the body, because everything's mapped onto the body anyway, all that stress just literally, and it manifests itself in the body. It manifests itself as aches, pains, and those things like sleeplessness, or even putting on weight. So it's very direct if we stop and look at it and say, ah, yes, work with the body, learn to love this body and find ways that we can connect with it much more deeply than we've ever done. We're on the first step to changing a lot of those non-caring behaviours. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it's quite striking the number of women who I might work with who go on as if by magic to lose weight because it is all tied together. It is all about how much attention are we prepared to give ourselves? How much love are we prepared to give ourselves? And that whole concept of you cannot give from an empty cup idea, you know, very many women don't even stop long enough to realise that their cup is empty, never mind take the time then to, to fill it up so that they that they can nurture themselves, so that they can nurture you know, their families, their businesses, whatever else they want to do in their life. So it's really, really important that we understand that the body has such a lot to tell us. And those subtle signals are very subtle till they're not longer any subtle and they've turned up the megaphone. And then we are in trouble as women. And that's flowing through into not just how we have our menopausal symptoms, but beyond because a lot of older women's health isn't that great, is it, Claire? Yes, absolutely. And I think high blood pressure, all of those diabetes, all of those kind of chronic 
lifestyle type conditions. Now, and by that, I don't mean you have caused your own problems, but they are conditions of our current lifestyle and culture in which we in which we are subjected to, if you like. Um, a lot of those conditions are st- would be abrogated to a certain degree if we learned how to manage stress. And a really easy way to learn how to manage your stress is to learn how to access the relaxation potential of your body. So for me, they're all very intertwined and interlinked. We only get this one vessel and it has amazing capabilities, but we often dampen down or ignore completely the signals that it's sending us early on, mainly because we often don't know what to do with them or don't even know how to recognize them often. No, or we're just so busy and we live in a culture where we go, oh, I've got this continual tension headache. Guess what? I'll just take whatever it is, which in whichever country you live, you take that tablet, it goes away and you press on. Or you press on even when you're really tired because somebody somewhere has told you that you should until you can't anymore. And, you know, I think often, and I'm sure you will do this with, with your clients as well, you're kind of doing that that kind of horizon scanning. Okay, if you carry on as you are, where is that going to leave you? And often for a lot of women, where it's going to leave them is not somewhere they want to go. So if you go back and say, right, okay, well, let's do a different exercise then. What would you like it to look like? You know, what, you know, if you could create a work life, your sex life, whatever it is, imagine forward, what would it be like? And we can work back from there. But often when it comes to sex, women don't know what they would like it to look like. And that can be tricky. It's all right. We're on two tracks. She's just decided. <laughs> she always does this. It's okay. So, yeah, that is just always back to self-care it's back to listening to the body and I think there's another word is being able to ask for what we need yes absolutely so working with wants and needs and desires and boundaries and also one of the key things I think around and this this applies not just for women I think it does apply for men as well is that saying no when we mean no so one of the phrases that I, I teach the women that I work with which is if you can't say no, then your yes means nothing. Because if you're saying yes, for example, when you actually mean no, then your yes doesn't mean anything to me. So if yes might mean no, or yes might mean maybe, or yes might mean yes, then where do I go with that if I'm a partner, if I'm somewhere else? So if we're always saying yes to things and we can't say no, then our yes is actually quite meaningless. That's the best way I've ever described boundaries. Have <laughs> ever heard that? Because that's true. If you answer if you answer yes to everything, and a lot of women, I think, or they don't say anything, they just kind of passively nod and go along with it. And I've been as guilty as anybody of that. Um, I've had to learn that journey. I've I've got an Icelandic husband. He's incredibly forthright. So if I answer yes, he goes, why are you saying yes when you mean no? So I go, oh, no, I meant no. He said, well, just say no, because I don't care if you say no. But I think there's this conditioned element that if we say no, we're going to be labeled with words we'd rather not have, like bitch or diva, or she's always very difficult. And we're not being difficult. We're just saying no means no right now, or no means I don't want to do that, I want to do something else. And that's a really important part. Is once I once we work with women around saying no to things, then we can say, you know, initially it's actually some some of the work that I do with women is literally getting them to say the word no out loud and mean it. Or maybe even at the beginning, not even mean it, because they're not used to saying no to things. 
So if you if you're always saying yes, then actually you're doing a disservice to the other person. Because if you and we do we do a lot of this work around when we're talking about consent and boundaries for in a sexual context, but it does apply in the wider world. Which is if you say yes to something that you mean no, then the other person is not in consent because the other person thinks that you're enthusiastically agreeing when actually you're a no. And that pushes someone else into the shadow because they would not, in particular, and I, I explained this to women around the thing that we we're talking about earlier about vaginal dryness. If your partner doesn't know that they're causing you pain, do you think they would want to continue if they did know? And the chances are that partners would not are not wanting to cause you pain, but you're putting them in a position of not being consensual because you're not being clear. And it's a really big piece for women to start to get, which is actually you're doing someone else a disservice if you say no, or if you say yes, rather, when you mean no. Yes. And and, it, and I think in that context, I would say that the majority of partners want the best for their other's partner, sexual or otherwise. They want them to enjoy what's going on. And if they think they're consenting, but putting up with it and gritting their teeth, I would think that most men would think that was a horrendous thing for the, the person. And they're obviously you've broken some sort of trust and bond between each other by allowing that situation to occur. And it can have gone on for a long time as well. And they're left very confused by it. Yes, absolutely. And that can be one of the difficult things when we start talking about, um, you know, having discussions with partners. So if someone comes to me and says, look, I've been doing this for five years, how do you go back to a partner and say, actually, if you, you know, if when we start to move towards feeling brave and, and, and working towards having a discussion, imagine how crestfallen a partner would be to discover that actually this had been going on for all this time. Now, we need to deal with that. You know, we, we do have to deal with the discomfort and a lot of the messy stuff that comes up around this if we want to move forward. But yeah, it's about, it's about being aware that we may be not necessarily doing the other person in, in a relationship a service, particularly because we know from survey data. So I, I said earlier that about 30% of women will have sex that's, that's unpleasant or painful for them and not tell their partner. There's survey data from the partners that says somewhere about 85% of them would want to be having the discussion. So a lot of this is within our control as women. It's not, I mean, there are also stories that I hear from women, well, my partner doesn't care and this and that and the other thing. But as you say, the vast majority of partners do care and do want to be involved in a conversation and do want to be in a situation where you're having a sex life that's meaningful for both of you. So how do women begin that conversation? Where do they start? Well, but I think there's a number of different places to start. I think it always starts with self. It doesn't really matter what we're talking about, is that we need to get our own house in order first. So it's difficult to ask for what you want if you don't know what you want. So it is a little bit about, but I say to people, let's become your own adventurer, become your own explorer and figure out what is it that you like? What do you not like? What are your ons and your offs? Because another aspect maybe we can talk about is that you know we have we have things that turn us on, but we also have things that turn us off, and we need to pay attention to both halves of that equation. So really starting, what is it that I like? What do I not like? And and gently start to introduce some of those things to a partner. I mean, sometimes I mean I say to people, say you know I sent you this thing, or somebody sent you this YouTube video, or somebody, and just start to gauge interest, start to gauge enthusiasm and just see how things go now often you know people may come to me and have not been having you know intimate relationships with their partners for a period of time so often we might work with couples together to start to so that they can both have a voice about what it is that they would like this to look like and there can be a lot of hurt and a lot of things that need to be talked through and understood um, but the place to start is just to start. It doesn't really matter in some ways what it is. It's just to make the decision that I want this 
and I'm going to take these baby steps towards it. Yes, and that is very important to start with baby steps, isn't it? And complete transparency. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the issue is, of course, if it just becomes another thing that culturally we expect women to do, you know, and here's another thing, you need to be having sex three times a week and all that stuff, then nobody's going to be able to to get there. It's simply about baby steps. It's simply about noticing. It's about taking some sort of action. doesn't really matter what that is. Buy a lubricant. Look at a little bit of, of porn if that's your thing or or get in a, a group with other women and, and talk about things. Just do something that starts to move things forward. And there's loads and loads of educational materials and things available online and courses and all sorts of things that you can really start to get to know yourself better. Yes, and I love that. And that feels to me like some very simple first few steps that women can take that's within their own control to change a big part of our life absolutely and it is just about like anything in life it's just about deciding (laughs) and that seems easy of course when you're on the other side of that hurdle and I know how hard it feels like anything isn't it you know how hard it feels when you're on this side of the hurdle and you haven't done it yet to leap the hurdle and look back and go what was I worried about but it is just about making a decision to try something it doesn't really matter what that something is and there is hope, isn't there, on the other side that your sex life can become different but amazing at, through menopause and definitely beyond. Absolutely. And there is a huge opportunity here because some of the stresses that we live with as younger women about pregnancy, for example, or continuing to be in a relationship where we feel perhaps financially that we can't leave a relationship, all of those things because of children, all of those kind of things can start to melt away away a little bit when we start to become towards midlife menopause and beyond. And we can start to make choices that are right for us. Um, You can have great sex through the menopause and beyond. And it is available to everyone who wants to, because what we're we're not saying is you can have this one particular brand of sex and you're good at it or you're not good at it. There is a whole array of things that can give you a fulfilling and pleasurable experience that you can share alone or share with a partner. I love that. I absolutely love that. Claire, it's been such a fascinating conversation and one that can run forever, you know, because it's such an integral part of who we are and there's so many different facets to it. But how can people get in touch with you and know more about the work that you do? The most of it, I offer a lot of work and things through a private Facebook group, which is called The Pleasure Possibility. It's an amazing, supportive group of women who have agreed to come together um, and hold a safe space for each other to discuss these really difficult topics around about sex and the menopause. Um, that's probably the best place to get me there. And I look forward to seeing anybody who wants to come and join us. And there's lots and lots of support available. That's wonderful, Claire. We'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing passion, knowledge, and a lot of hope, I feel, for those of us who are midlife and beyond and maybe struggling with our sex life. Thank you so much, Carissa. Thank you for listening. If you have loved or liked this episode, then I would be deeply grateful if you would head over to iTunes and give it a five-star rating. My mission is to reach as many women as possible, menopausal midlife women who may be feeling alone and asking questions why do I feel this way? Thriving Through Menopause is all about a community and our collective wisdom. 
you matter to me. Your feedback, opinions and stories matter to me. And I would love to hear from you. So drop me an email, clarissa at clarissachristensen.com. I genuinely want your feedback and your ideas on the topics that you would like to hear more of on this podcast. And if you are a woman who feels that they are struggling alone through menopause and you need more support, pop over to my website, clarissachristensen.com. You can find free resources and you can book a one-to-one discovery call with me. Let's start conversation. Thank you once again for listening. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty. That means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money.